Today, as we continue our series through Hebrews, we're going to move into chapter 10. So if you want to start getting your thumb in there, um, we're going to look at what seems to be the final piece of our author's deep dive into the specific pillars of Judaism. That is particularly the covenants, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices. In the first half of chapter 10 that we're going to be looking at, we're going to wind up this discourse he was having on the sacrifices, where he's keying in on the magnificence of the sacrifice that we have in Christ. And obviously we're going to be just engaging in a continuation of what we were talking about last week. But I want to key in on a very specific effect that our author is claiming Christ's sacrifice has had on his people. And to put our mind and hearts on the right track, I want you to hear these, you don't need to be flipping to them, but hear these three verses from elsewhere in Hebrews. Hebrews 1.3, the sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? from dead works, to serve the living God. From just after this morning's passage, Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our author has been building a point that in some manner the blood of Christ the once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus made upon Calvary somehow has a purifying effect. Not just in a general sense, but particularly upon our hearts and our conscience. And that's going to be a good chunk of our focus this morning. So that introduction being made, um, would you come with me to our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 10? And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. And then we'll come to our Lord in prayer. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to have been offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. By the reading and the hearing of his word, may God equip and encourage his church while convicting and persuading those who do not yet know him. Would you pray with me? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you that because there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. That we are not bound by the old covenant, but that you have instituted something new and far greater. We thank you that you have given us a hope. You have given us a reason to draw together and worship as, as a community here. Lord, that indeed you give us breath this morning. And Lord, we pray that we would not cease to worship you for, for what you have done. We pray that this word that we have just read would be applied to our hearts and minds and open before us that we might see how it can affect our, our daily lives. That every word of your word is worthwhile reading. Every word of your word is effective in the hearts that are willing to hear what it has to say. And God, in the preaching of your word, may you be worshipped. In the hearing of the preaching of your word, may you be worshipped. That I may fade away and that we might be turned towards you to give you all honor and glory and praise that you have done this amazing thing. That we might never forget that you are the one who is worthy and that you are the one who is good and who is God. We thank you for these things, and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So obviously, our passage this morning is a, something of a continuation of thought from what was being said in chapter 9. The author feels that in that preceding chapters, he's effectively demonstrated that the law is indeed a type and a shadow of greater things to come. But there's one particular implication that he still wishes to draw out. We've acknowledged that Christ's sacrifice was truly 
once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But in doing so, in accomplishing that, Christ has totally changed the paradigm of perpetual guilt that inhabited the Old Testament sacrificial system. For under that old system, the, when an Israelite came to the temple to offer their sacrifices, they were more or less just washing the outside of the cup. They came and made their sacrifices, and they were called clean. But the power to change and affect the hearts of mankind is not found in the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. If you wonder whether that's the case, just look back at chapter 9. Only the high priest could come before the mercy seat, and that only once a year. If those sacrifices that he had offered effectively purged sin, cleaning the inside of the cup, as it were, then any person fresh from their sacrifice should have been able to safely appear before God. But we know that's not the case. If you or I take it seriously that we are legitimately invited to come before the throne of God himself when we find ourselves in need of his grace, we have to admit that there's a fundamental difference between what Christ has accomplished on the cross and what was repeatedly offered in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So in proper Baptist fashion, I want to draw out three important and alliterated sections of what our author is saying this morning. The passing of the sacrificial offering, the propitiation of sin, and the purification of the conscience. Like we've already said, and like our author summarizes in our passage this morning, every priest stands daily at a service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Our author also quotes from Psalm 40 when he says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Last week I had mentioned that the institution of the sacrifice was likely one of the most untouchable of the old covenant institutions. My reasoning being that it was arguably the longest standing and most unaltered of the elements within the old covenant system of worship. But David in Psalm 40 says that God didn't desire sacrifices and offerings. And to quote Jonathan Edwards, no sacrifices of the law, not all of them together, were a means for the expiation of sin, suited to the glory of God or the needs of the souls of men. 
the constant use of sacrifices to signify those things that they could not affect in worshipers was a great part of the slavery that the church was held in under the Old Testament. So somehow those sacrifices must necessarily be replaced by something far greater. And now, my brothers, is where we come to the propitiation of sins. We've talked at length of what the sacrificial system could not do. And it couldn't do the very thing it was designed to do, which is to make God's people righteous with God's own righteousness. Not only could it not do that, it served to make sin all the more heinous because the people then knew what God had commanded and were not doing it. The law served and still serves in some way to make us aware of our total inadequacy to the task of achieving righteousness in our own strength. Romans 3 is one of my favorite chapters, and it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In a quote I just read from Edwards, and here in Romans 3, we run into two exceedingly important, closely related, and almost never used in the English language, difficult words. Propitiation and expiation. And I know many of us, and myself included, sometimes run across these words and go, It's used in Scripture, and that is the only place I've ever seen it used. So what does it mean? If we are to understand what Christ has done, then these two words, or at least the the reality of what they represent, have to become a part of our vocabulary. These words are close enough in meaning that if you're to look them up in the dictionary, quite often you'll see a definition under one, and the other one will just say, see other. Particularly expiation. If you look it up in even a Bible dictionary, often you'll just see, see propitiation. They're that closely tied. And indeed, they are two parts of the same whole. One doesn't exist in our faith without the other. The late Dr. R.C. Sproul explained it so well. Beginning with the word expiation, the prefix ex means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. 
In biblical terms, it has to do with the taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. By contrast, propitiation has to do with the object of the expiation. The prefix pro means for, so propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude so that he moves from being at enmity with us to being for us. Through the process of propitiation, we are restored into fellowship and favor with him. Expiation is the act that results in the change of God's disposition towards us. It is what Christ did on the cross, and the result of Christ's work of expiation is propitiation. God's anger is turned away. The distinction is the same as that between the ransom that is paid and the attitude of the one who receives the ransom. In the death of Christ, both the expiation and the propitiation of our sins is accomplished. The guilt and the punishment that is rightfully ours is placed upon a substitute, that is Christ. And his expiation of our sins we receive the rewards of propitiation where we lose our status as objects of God's wrath. In my mind, that's why the beginning verses of Ephesians 2 are so well-loved across Christendom. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work, now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Without this work of Christ, the original passage, or the original audience of our passage this morning, would still be stuck under the old covenant of repeated sacrifices, awaiting the coming of a Messiah to legitimize those sacrifices. And in reality, that is where modern-day Jews find themselves. No longer do they generally offer animal sacrifices, but instead, since there's no longer a temple, modern religious Jews instead pray or give charity instead to atone for their sins as the sacrifice would have accomplished. And for the rest of us Gentiles, we would not even be so fortunate as to have that hope to cling to we would still remain totally and irredeemably, irredeemably outside of God's chosen people. But thank God he has made 
away through the sacrifice of Christ. No longer are we stuck in the guilt of our sins. No, we're promised the purification of our conscience. And that's really where I want to land this morning. We are pretty clear at this point of the last few weeks of preaching that the continuation of the sacrifice is no longer necessary. And to some extent, whether you recognize it or not, all believers have some understanding of the propitiation of sins because that is the good news of the gospel. This concept of the purification of the conscience, though, I don't think is overly well understood. What does it mean that the blood of Christ purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When our author disparages the continuing of the sacrifice, saying, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, have not, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. I know for me, I look at it and go, I, I still have consciousness of my sins. I still remember the sins that I've committed and are forgiven. It means that as believers, followers of Christ who has made both expiation and propitiation for our sins, we are no longer condemned to relive and pay penance for the sins of our past. Look with me at Psalm 103, starting in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That promise only finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ the promised Messiah. Because you read here that as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes our transgressions from us. But this is to Jewish people that every year their transgressions are being brought back before their faces as they repeatedly come to offer sacrifices. It serves as a reminder of what they have done and what needs to be done to make atonement for that. It's a reminder every year of what and who they are as fallen mankind.
If you don't know that you have understood the gospel, hear this this word starting in verse 5 of Hebrews 10. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. No longer are our sins counted against us if we are indeed in Christ Jesus. Because Christ has been offered once to bear the sins of many. Because of that, we receive the promises that are contained in the new covenant. When Christ raised the cup at the Last Supper, he said that the cup represented a new covenant in his blood. And if you ever wondered what that new covenant entailed, you need only to read here in our recent passages from Hebrews. And the most beautiful summary comes in starting in verse 15 of our passage. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. After saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. God gave his people and God gave the world his law to let mankind know that no matter how desperately we try, we cannot please him on our own. Every part of our being is so stained with sin that even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags or a polluted garment. But then he sends his son. His son deals decisively and permanently with the sin that plagued his people. And then that son leaves this earth, ascending to the right hand of the Father, having made purification for sin. He then sends his Holy Spirit, part of the Godhead, the very author of the law, and then the very Spirit of God would dwell within the hearts of his people. Not constantly there to remind them of how they are grievous lawbreakers, which, I mean, we all know that we are, but he is in there convicting and correcting and sanctifying his own people to bring them in line with God's own declaration of the justification of his people. God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. He declares each one who by their faith in Christ has been washed in the blood to be righteous, justified in the sight of the King of Kings. Then by the Holy Spirit, he works in us to sanctify us, gradually aligning the reality of our lives to the heavenly declaration of justification that we've received, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And that work having been done, Christ having been sacrificed once and for all, why would anyone 
And this is the point of our author to his original audience. Why would anyone ever go back to a previous covenant? Would you exchange such a poor copy for the real thing? Exchange fool's gold for true gold as refined in the holy fire of heaven? Brothers and sisters, this morning, would you exchange what you have as a son or daughter of the king, the finished work of Christ for some manner of works-based righteousness that somehow thinks you could earn your way into heaven. If you exchange the gospel that we have in Christ for this works-based righteousness, then you will daily be reminded by your own failures just as surely as the sacrifices of Israel reminded them yearly of their failures to achieve the perfection that the law said about to achieve. No, brothers and sisters, in Christ we can have a purified and perfected conscience. Not that we become holy and perfect in this life. Not that we become without sin. But we can know that our sins, every single one of them, past, present, and future, was finally dealt with upon the cross of Christ. That's why we have hope when a brother or sister is involved in a car accident and doesn't have that last moment to confess their sins. That's why when we have brothers and sisters who are fighting in the Ukraine and aren't given that last second to make confession for their sins, that we're not thinking that, well, they didn't have a chance to confess it, so it's not dealt with, so they have to either go to purgatory or they lose their salvation or whatever it might be. Our sins, every single one of them, past, present, and future, if we are in Christ, are dealt with in Christ. Paul said in Romans, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in the newness of life. Brothers and sisters, Christ has died and has given us this gift of a purified conscience. In a Bible study this week, we, we talked about the fact that there's a, a difference between the work of the Holy Spirit that serves to convict us of sins that need to be dealt with in our lives and the work of our enemy, Satan, who throws our sin before our face and says, who are you to come before God? 
give up. That is not the gospel. The gospel is our sins have been dealt with in Christ and thus do not walk any longer bound up by your sinful passions or the perpetual guilt that accompanies your sins. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That is the so what moment. The passing of the sacrificial offering, the propitiation of sin, the purification of our conscience, all of that is done for God's glory. And that we as believers might glorify him by living to and for him. To steal from pretty well the rest of Hebrews, we are to persevere and hold fast our confidence and continue our boasting and our hope. Don't take for granted the fact that your sins are dealt with. And if your sins are dealt with, and you no longer need to be pouring all of your time and your effort in trying to somehow make up and atone for those sins, instead, out of gratitude for what Christ has done and for the glory of the one that you now serve, Serve him with righteous hearts that desire to see his name lifted up. As our worship team comes to lead us in a closing song, I'd ask that you would pray with me. Our God and our Heavenly Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here today, for my brothers and sisters who are listening online, for myself, that we would not get bogged down by a conscience that is being attacked by our adversary and throwing our sins in our faces. I pray that we would recognize and receive this purification of the conscience and say, God has done what he wills and he has willed to take and deal with my sin and that we would live as ones who have been blessed in such a way. That we would live as ones who have moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and that the kingdom of darkness no longer has any hold on us. And Lord, may we glorify you constantly for what you have done and are doing. May the work of sanctification that you have begun in our lives by the Holy Spirit continue. And may we work towards that to see our sanctification grow. May we not hesitate to cut out of our lives the the sin that so easily entangles and ensnares us, that we might more effectively 
pursue you. That we might more effectively share your gospel with those whom we meet. And Lord, may your gospel ever be on our tongues, particularly as we engage with our friends and our family and our coworkers that we see out in the, in the world, for they do not have this promise. Their sin and their darkness is ever before their face, and although some choose to ignore it, eventually they will be called to account upon it, as will all. And for us as believers, when we are called to account, we can point to the righteousness of Christ and says, he has, we have his righteousness. And Christ has taken the penalty for our unrighteousness and our sin. But they will have no such defense. And Lord, may we recognize that and do everything we can to spare them from such a fate knowing that you and your sovereign will have chosen whom you have chosen, but we still have the responsibility to preach your word wherever we go. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. And God, we thank you so much for Christ. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.